You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Episode 13, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Hello, this is your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Welcome back to The Paradox. If you're a first-time listener, thank you so much for stumbling upon the show or thanking your friend for directing you my way. I think you'll be in store for an interesting conversation today with a, an author and physician, uh, John Hunt. The Paradox podcast is created by me in order to help physicians better understand what's going on in the trenches and to help those who are not physicians understand what physicians are doing within the trenches of medicine. Today, we're going to be talking about not the practice of medicine so much as we're going to be talking about the education of medicine, and specifically medical residency. For those of you who aren't not aware, once you finish medical school, which is after generally after college, you complete some years of training in a specialty. So, for instance, mine was four years in anesthesiology, my wife did three years in pediatrics, and so you, whether you do primary care or you do specialty care, you're doing some level of training in your specific specific field. You may then do further training in a fellowship, which case my guest did an additional uh, four years uh, learning a pediatric subspecialty. Our discussion today will be primarily based around the ACGME. And the ACGME is the American College of Graduate Medical Education. So as with everything in medicine, there are piles of acronyms everywhere, simply because we don't want to say the American College of Graduate Medical Education very often. And the ACGME is a private organization that promulgates rules for how you uh, train people in medical education. So you can't be an accredited uh, program if you don't meet certain specifications. Now, obviously, every specialty has different requirements, and those are set forth by their specialty boards uh, for the board certification process. But the ACGME sets rules in general for residents. So for instance, they may have a rule saying, that residents can only work a certain amount of hours per week, and they actually have such a rule. They may say every resident has to be trained by just physicians, which there is such a rule, although that has changed, and now physicians are no longer required to be trained just under physicians, which is an interesting uh, development, which we can discuss at some other future time. So the AGME sets basic rules, but they, of course, as with any sort of organization that is setting rules, they're good at setting rules, and they set lots of them. And many of them are ones that are ridiculous or, you'd say, unnecessary. And so that's a lot of what the book goes into. It's a very funny book, it's, and it's a very quick read. 
and I would highly recommend it to anybody who's interested in medicine and sort of bureaucracy. I mean, I guess who's interested in bureaucracy, but I guess I guess how it relates to getting your job done. And if you're an academic, certainly you'll probably be able to to uh, understand a little bit. And as someone who has went through the medical education training process, you know you don't see with the ACGME uh, how it affects you. But when you think about it as the way you deal with in medicine with any sort of um, regulatory agency like the Joint Commission or JACO, which is obviously talked about in the book as well, uh, you can understand that the same sort of principles apply with a different governing body. That And so you have to deal in a hospital system with not only the, the, the hospital rules, rules as their accrediting organization, which is JACO, but you'd obviously have to deal with the education accrediting uh, accreditation process so you have sort of the double the double whammy as you get the, the boxes you have to check for both organizations um, at, with your job and so our discussion focuses primarily on ACGME and hospital systems and sort of how medicine is changed especially for an academic as Dr. Hunt who is now retired we will go into a little bit on his charity works that he has started in the country of Liberia and uh, we'll also discuss a little bit on medical tourism and which I definitely will have to delve into further in a future episode. As always, I couldn't do this without your continued uh, interest in sending me emails about show ideas. I appreciate that so much. Uh, thank you so much for sharing the show. It's been far more popular than I had anticipated this early in the show, and I've learned a lot. I hope you have as well. I would recommend, if you're a first-time listener, to go back and look over the titles. You'll find a number of them, I think, that will be very interesting to you. Uh, we're going to talk about a number of episodes uh, in this in this episode. We're specifically going to talk about population health, which is something I talked with Dr. Cod. We're going to discuss drug shortages, which are always a topic. Uh, and I discussed this with Dr. Mary Mass, which is one that I think is very critical and probably the one I've still learned the most in of any episode that I've done. Uh, we're also going to be discussing... Uh, free market medicine, which I discussed with Dr. Keith Smith, who runs the surgery center in the last episode, in episode 12. As always, you can go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, slash the paradox, spelled the same as the show, and you can go there and become a patron supporter of the show. All the money raised there goes to the production and promotion of the show. It has helped me tremendously in not only providing encouragement, but has also allowed me to get a little bit better um, audio equipment and has made the show better. And so I think uh, for that, I'd appreciate all those all the people who have given support. And so I'd encourage you to go there. There are also a couple of bonus things uh, that you have access to. And so I expect to put more stuff there as I get more patrons. I'd encourage you to go to theparadox.com, and you can find the show notes page. The show notes page for today is, of course, theparadox.com slash 013. And you can find links to the books and all the websites we talk about, and also be some backlinks to the previous interviews that I've done that relate to the show. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. John Hunt, who's a pediatric allergy immunologist slash pulmonary specialist, uh, and we'll discuss his book, Assume the Physician. Enjoy. So this is Dr. Eric Larson. I'm here with author and fellow physician, Dr. John Hunt, who wrote the book, Assume the Physician, which is, um, I guess you'd say as funny as the book, the title assumes. Uh, it was a uh, it, it was actually a surprisingly fun read and quick, and I'd recommend it to anyone who has a spare couple of hours, or I guess it's longer than that, it's a couple hundred pages, but it was a, a real fun book about where it follows the, 
the history of Dr. Eddie Marcus, who's a first-year family practice resident. And um, I guess it's, it highlights the sort of the inanity of the, the education process for residents and does go into a little bit on the medical student side of things, at least the, into the selection process. So Dr. Hunt is currently in, on vacation, so I appreciate him taking some time out to talk to me today. Uh, so let's get a little background on you. So you are a pediatric pulmonologist, allergy immunologist. It's a lot of letters, uh, and specialties. Can you tell a little bit about your back background and then what led you to write the book? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, after college, I took a year off to uh, take all those pre-med courses, which I'd never taken in college because I was a geology major and enjoyed that kind of work. Um, and went to medical school at GW in Washington. Um, and the Navy paid for most of my, my way through that. So I paid them back by spending a few years in the lovely environs of, of San Diego for my pediatric residency. And then the uh, also lovely but somewhat different environs of Iceland for the next three years. Ooh, wow. At that point, there was a NATO base there, and I was the pediatrician for NATO. And then, um, and then back to, uh, been to Charlottesville, Virginia, UVA, where I did my fellowships. Um, and uh, as you said, both in pulmonary and, and allergy immunology. And then I did an academic career. Uh, but concurrent with my academic career, um, I started some businesses in both in healthcare, device, pharmaceuticals, as well as a transportation company. And I started writing books. Actually, I started writing books in Iceland um, just because I had a little free time there as a general pediatrician, which may be uncommon, but at that point it was common, um, at least while you're in Iceland. <laughs> and <laughs> so I just got very entrepreneurial. Um, and I was always kind of aware of the concerns in the healthcare system or the medical care system. Um, but over time, working in pharmaceuticals as well as devices and comparing that to the unregulated uh, transportation business, relatively unregulated, saw a radical difference and um, a lot of concerns, which brought me in the end to resign my tenure uh, at the University of Virginia um, and start working on the fight to bring a little bit of freedom into the medical system, a little bit of free markets, a little bit of pricing, a little bit of normalcy, which had totally been removed over the, the last couple of decades. Right. And um, so I guess uh, when you look at medicine, I think everyone talks about the, the free market aspects of medicine and how we're sort of a mixed industry, I guess, you, if you want to call it an industry. Uh, but I think for people outside and, and probably even a lot of physicians inside, I think it's, it's hard to, I guess it's hard to, unless you sit back and like look at it closely to recognize how, how not a market... <laughs> situation is. I mean, obviously, the third-party payer system really distorts the market quite a bit. And uh, you go into that quite a bit in your your book. I mean, I, I want to see... So the book is... Um, it's very funny, and it's it's uh, it shows sort of the... the, the um, I guess it exposes the bureaucracy and sort of the ridiculous nature of rules. And, and it doesn't have to be specifically, I guess, one of medicine. I mean, I think, you know, if it, I mentioned in the front cover that it's, it's uh, written sort of along the same lines of Catch-22, which if you've never read Joseph Heller's book, it is fantastic and it's one I'd highly recommend. Um, but just sort of the circular nature of bureaucratic rules and sort of how they don't make any, don't make any sense. And, and we have plenty of them in medicine, just like I think probably m many industries that are governed largely or even partially by uh, government. 
so you, you mentioned that you're in, you're in academia <clears throat> you're not anymore, but you were for a while. So is that what brought you, there's certainly a lot of it about this or the rules of residencies and things like that, which we'll go and get into a little bit, but is that sort of what, why you focus in the book so much on a first year family practice medicine resident to sort of go through all the ACGME and all those sorts of things? Yeah. I mean, it was just, you know, I was immersed in academic life and, uh, you know, the full triple threat of research clinic and, and, um, teaching, um, and kept on running into these ridiculous bureaucratic things that were promulgated by organizations such as the ACGME, which for all, you know, it seems to have complete compulsory power over universities these days. And yet, you know, why don't we just laugh at them with their silly lists of, of requirements for a, a training program? Um, don't, I don't see why we don't just thumb our nose and say, go away. Um, likewise, Jayco, um, the, these, you know, there's some good stuff in Jayco, no doubt, but they don't really need a thousand pages to teach, you know, to make sure that you take the milk out of the fridge when it expires. <laughs> it's, <laughs> so I, when I was watching all the, all the people change in academic medicine, um, where when I had joined the University of Virginia, it was very much Thomas Jefferson's university where the faculty who provided the clinical work, the research, and the teaching were really the, the key players um, because we were providing the services to the people who needed us. And um, the, the, depart- the division heads um, basically worked for the faculty, the department heads who, you know, titularly are above the division heads. The department heads worked for the division heads. The deans worked for the department head, and the president of the university worked for the deans. That's how it was when I got to UVA, but by the mid-2000s, roughly 2006, 2008, that kind of time frame, that structure had totally inverted, and it was a top-down command control economy and, uh, at the medical center, and um, the, we were all of a sudden just the, the servants to the particular whims of the next president of the university, who was pretty much following the whims of what was coming down from Washington, D.C., so, so things like, oh, I'll say that things like um, um, absolute prioritization above all else on certain little things that happen to be a you know a little bit of a <clears throat> so, you know a meme somewhere that pops up on somebody's screen and all of a sudden becomes you know the mandated primary thing that the whole university medical center must focus on. Um, <laughs> it's, but 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 <laughs> so I didn't I didn't like I'm not sure that academics have fully realized that that inversion has occurred, but it has occurred not just at UVA but everywhere. This the faculty at most academic centers now are down at the bottom of the tree as opposed to kind of the focus um, and getting the support needed to you know provide the services for the people who need us. Right, and so and I <clears throat> I talked to Dr. Michelle Lacotte a few episodes ago. And we and we um, discussed. We discussed the the evolution of treating populations versus treating patients and sort of this and how it's it seems it's a strange concept, I guess, in some ways to to think that you're when you're sitting in that room talking to a patient, you're actually treating a population. And but it it does change your focus, right? When you're no longer you're treating sort of aggregate numbers as opposed to treating individual patients. And so it sounds like in many ways you've sort of seen the same sort of thing here with, with the universities. Um, and I think probably the same goes for most large healthcare systems, which pretty much at this point are about every healthcare system that they are focused more on 
uh, meeting sort of criteria or I wouldn't say it's algorithmic medicine necessarily is except, I mean, there is algorithmic medicine, but more that you have to meet certain dictates and, and things which uh, rules, which may or may not make any sense. I mean, sort of in the aggregate, they might make sense, but for specific patients or individuals, you say, well, that's actually the wrong treatment strategy, but we have to make sure we don't have, we keep, we don't put urinary catheters in anybody because there's a risk of infection and there's, you know, government scoring and these sorts of things. And so a lot of these, a lot of these things seem to affect, I guess you'd say the way that, that they get paid. And so that ultimately is what drives most of the, most of their decisions and and rule promulgation. And so then you get to the point where you have today where the physician, the clinicians are less clinicians and maybe more, um, you know, just, just workers who are following rules that they may or may not, you know, agree with or think they're in the best, best case for their patient. So with the ACGME, first of all, that's the American College of Graduate Medical Education, right? So this is a quote unquote private organization that is, that sets the rules for the training of residents and residents after medical school, you go to residency where you, most people go to residency where they get subspecialty training in some sort of, you know, like cardiology or in your case, pediatrics, and then you do a sub fellowship in uh, allergy immunology. So the ACGME is a private organization. Technically, it's not actually government run. Uh, how do they have so much power? And how do they get? I guess how do they have implicit? I guess authority through the through the federal government. I imagine is kind of where it comes from. Yeah, I mean, the government is the only organization legally authorized to initiate force against innocent people. That's kind of the definition of government, right? So somehow, you know, the, all these universities are feeling compelled to abide by ACGME's benign, tyrannical dictums. But how, what is that compulsion? Mostly, it, I, I suspect it mostly has to do with Medicare, um, because Medicare is the compulsory component. And um, in order to get that Medicare money, um, you've got to abide by whatever rules CMS comes up with. And I expect, but I don't know for sure, I expect that they've managed to wrangle a deal um, with ACGME to make sure that ACGME has an effective monopoly on the control of, of idiotic training ideas. And they, they certainly have done really well with coming up with idiotic training ideas. Um, and then we're somehow, you know, either not fully compelled, but um, heavily manipulated into participating in those. And the bureaucrats don't realize it. The bureaucrats who run the universities just say, oh, we got to check that box, go do it. And they drop the drop the bomb down on the dean who drops it on the department heads to make sure that the fellowship programs and residency programs all abide by a bunch of uh, nonsensical escapees from the asylum <laughs> who are filling the ACGME at this point. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess you'd say that it, the uh, ACGME is, I mean, probably if you're looking at the rules promulgation, it's probably the CMS says for in order for us to give special um, enhanced reimbursement to uh, facilities that have training, you have to be ACGME approved or certified, right? And so the government can sort of make it compulsory, although it's not technically compulsory that you have to abide by, <clears throat> excuse me, ACGME's rules. What you're, what you're talking about there a few minutes ago kind of connects and in, in um, this notion of population medicine versus you know what we're supposed to be, which is taking care of our individual patients. 
I consider all that part of this collectivist infection, which is some kind of brain disease that's been increasingly taking over the population in the United States. And it kind of, it seems to spread itself around wherever there's um, people checking. It's like an idea, an infectious idea um, that is really very, very harmful, which I consider it a pathogen. And part of it is, part of it in medicine, where we seem to be on the front lines of this collectivist um, takeover, is that the government, you know, way back in the 30s, uh, 40s, 40s, uh, World War II time time frame, um, put insurance companies as intermediaries in the healthcare system. We all know this story of how they how they did that to help, you know, companies recruit workers whenever all the other workers were over getting shot overseas. Um, but if you think about what an insurance company is and has always been, it makes its profit from collective outcomes, not from individual outcomes. Right. You know, it, it does statistics and analysis from the very first insurance company 400 years ago. It has done statistics and analysis and the individual doesn't matter. And our government has stuck organizations in which culturally for four centuries have focused on collectivist outcomes as their entire focus and modus operandi and stuck them in the middle of something that should be an entirely individualist thing, which is the relationship of a doctor with a patient and making the patient as well as you can be. We should be pure individualists with you know, statistics and data providing advice to us and content to us and context to us. But this collectivist outcome thing, utter, just horrible notion. And it all comes from, as always, as almost always, a government stupid intervention. Right. And, and I would say that most of the, and even when you look at these, the, these rules that you talk about and regulations, I mean, most of them are, I, I guess I would say, maybe most is not fair, but Many of them are, not, are make sense, right? Like, for instance, not to have expired milk sit in a refrigerator, right? And so uh, we'll see this with Jayco and, well, and I shouldn't call them Jayco because they have changed their name, which you may not be aware of. Oh, I'm thankfully not aware. <laughs> they, they, are, they are no longer to be referred as Jayco. And maybe this is just in my, it, it, where I am, but it, they're now just known as the Joint Commission, which, of course, is exactly the same thing. They used to Joint Commission accrediting hospital organization. But no, now they get now, to accredit all kinds of different organizations. I expect that that's an expansion of their power, I, I guess. I suspect that they are now, you're right, that they're probably working the ambulatory field and maybe outside, and maybe outside of medicine or at non-traditionally medical facilities, like, I don't know, maybe chiropractor's offices. I have no idea. But they're now known as simply the Joint Commission. And so what will what I'll see happen, and I'm sure this is not unique in any way to any hospital system, is that you will have them come through and they can't come through your hospital and not find a violation or some sort of thing that needs to be corrected. I don't think they hardly ever shut a hospital down, uh, <clears throat> but they'll find problems and they'll say, well, you know, it's kind of dangerous that you have these syringes sitting here or you have, you know, the order's not done properly your consent forms aren't dated adequate, whatever. And so these sort of these committees are then formed by the hospital to address the issue. And then, then the joint commission comes back a year later to make sure that you fix these. So they have this, I mean, obviously it's a, and with you have an institution as large as a hospital, especially if you're hospitals that now are now encompass outpatient facilities and clinics and things, you're going to find tons of things that are not done the way that they like. I mean, <laughs> just by nature of any, if you walk, you know, just like walking through your house, you're going to find something wrong with your house. 
if you're, cause your house is big enough, you're gonna find a crack in a wall or something. And so that, <clears throat> so they'll just continue to find new things, which then of course means that they have to come back and, you know, perpetuates, but that they can't go through and not find anything. Right. So they have to find something wrong. There has to be some sort of thing initiative they're working on. And you'll see this in hospitals with these nursing commissions or committees are set up to, they just have to, they never remove rules or regulations. They always add them. And there is some element of, I guess, rationality to, to the initial promulgation of the rules. Like, oh, this is a common sense thing to do. But of course, the thing is, is most people are doing things that make sense anyway, right? So like, you're not going to have rotten food in your refrigerator anyway. That's, <laughs> you don't really need a regulation telling you to do things that everybody knows anyway. But just the, the nature that you're doing that is what it uses up a lot of extra time and resources and, and it makes you fill out another form, right? <clears throat> so that now, so you're, that now you're, you're doing stuff that's not, not medicine. <laughs> you have people who are doing non-medical things in your hospital. And when you see the explosion of administration um, numbers of people who are just doing non-clinical work in the hospitals, this is very much the reason why this occurs. And I'm sure in academia, I'm sure it's it's even doubly so because you're also filling up boxes, not only just for the Joint Commission, but also for the residency and the training programs. Yeah, it's um, it's gotten, it's I think, totally out of control is what I'd say when admin increases by tenfold while doctors increase by, you know, 50%. It's uh, something is broken badly. And I think it's, uh, wh what can I say other than I th it's some kind of strange yeah. change in society that we sit there and allow these uh, top-down command and control mentalities to tell us what to do. I don't mind them advising us what to do. I think that Jaco has a lot of really, you know, wise and smart suggestions in there. Right. Um, and it's just the, the domineering demand command. It's, it's like Obamacare, you know, if you want to buy insurance, okay. Um, um, and maybe a lot of people should have certain types of financial protection for their insurance, but to compel you to buy a certain type, it's so far outside the realm of anything that the federal government is supposed to be authorized to do. And yet the great majority of the country sat there and said, Oh, okay. Yeah. And it's like, why did they accept that they have to do what they're told by a bunch of, you know, semi sociopathic people up there in Congress? Yeah. I don't get it. So this has taken a really dark turn, this conversation. <laughs> and, and, and I always say it because it's actually a really fun book. So, <laughs> that is, that is, uh, that, that pokes fun at the, at the rules. And, and so some of the things in there, I'm not even aware are, are I, I'm wondering if, how many of them are real. And so that's why I want a quick, quick question. So one of the things in there was uh, the rule prompt that, that ACGME instituted that was required sleep. Is that actually a rule? Because I know there are work hour requirements. Was there actually think something about napping or resting or something like that? Or is that just your extension of sort of what the next step would be if about with work hour restrictions? Now, when I wrote the book, that was the uh, the thing that they, I don't know if it ever got promulgated, but that was what the next you know big move was going to be was mandatory naps. That was serious. I don't know what happened to it. You'd know about it. I, su I suspect if it managed to uh, not get scoffed at too much. Right. But well, was, I, I haven't heard really so, but again, I see all, all I do is see the, the residents in front of the computers. And so um, we had, I had a whole episode about the electronic health records and sort of how I, I clearly when you were there, it was even more paper-based. It, it was funny that when they, the hospital moved to computer-based um, record keeping, there was never more paper ever used than with that. And I, 
<laughs> right. Because, because, of course, you couldn't actually find anything usually in the computer, so you had to have them print stuff out. And, of course, you're printing out pages of information that was completely useless as far as what you want. You know, I wanted just to see the echo report or maybe a couple lab values. I didn't need the entire HMP, which is 17 pages if you print it out. Just like if you print out a web page, it takes like seven pages to print out a web page because you can scroll down, of course, right? So right. We have, we've now thankfully gotten beyond that. And so now we actually do have less paper than we had in the past. But for many years there, it was, it was, it was humorous that there's far more paper. The paper chart that didn't exist that was actually necessary to get anything done because you didn't have the paper chart. And the things you wanted was not actually in the computer, but. Yeah. Uh, my, my concern about EMRs, and probably I presented it in the same of the physician, is this is the doctor EMR relationship as opposed to the doctor patient relationship. And it's, it's just a strange thing to see doctors staring at a computer screen or clicking off things on a computer or have their back turned to the patient. Um, and it's the EMR, yes, it has an ability to consolidate a bunch of data, most of which we don't need, but consolidate a bunch of stuff into an easily accessible way. But the purpose of the EMRs aren't in general, to make patient care better. They're to make insurance billing more efficient and more comprehensive and to make sure that they sort their ICD-9 codes and their CPT codes in the right direction to get maximal billing. I mean, when you have a purpose, a primary purpose of that, as opposed to a primary purpose of optimizing patient care, you're bound to get into trouble. And I think that's the underlying reason why people still struggle with the EMRs and why patients are sitting there going, why aren't you looking at me, doctor? Yeah, right. And well, and I mean, my wife has seen this in her practice. I, where now they can, you know, they're everyone has EMRs now, and the EMRs, you, they have to make a decision when they make design the EMR that you either design it to optimize billing or you optimize um, efficiency for flow the the through the through the clinic. You know, make sure you have the, exactly the templates you want, and make sure you have uh, make it simple to to fill out what you need to make for your note for, you know, what the patient's on medication, those sorts of things. And so naturally everyone has to pick, everyone has to pick the billing portion. So that has, it optimizes the billing because if you don't make any money, then there's no point how great a clinical information it gathers because, because of course, then you won't be there. <laughs> right. And so, and, and, and what is, if you're not in medicine and it's, it's hard to understand what billing looks for is different than what a physician would look for. So, or in any sort of other business, well, let's say, you're going to make sure you maximize uh, the information necessary for that person to come back. For instance, I sell you a tire. I want to make sure that when you come back, I know what tire I put on and how much pressure was in it and you know, which tire replaced. I don't care necessarily um, about 30 other things that like how often you come in for tires or what your race is, you know. Um, you know, what you're wearing or, I mean, all kinds of other information, you know, whether we're seatbelts, I mean, those things are not things that I'm concerned with, but for some, a third party who's paying for this, like with the insurance company, they have all kinds of other dictates that they're concerned about. And so, and they're going to make sure that when you come in that I ask you 27 different questions in order to maximize the amount I can charge for that tire. So this is probably a bad analogy, but I mean, basically, I mean, that's basically the problem, right? So that you have you're gathering a bunch of information that is not clinically relevant and you're yeah, so. and, and, and storing it, which is, which has no bearing on when you see this patient the next time. And so you're just getting a, there's a bunch of extra stuff there that you just don't need to, and it's waste time. Yeah. It's just to get a category four code instead of a cat three code. Exactly. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's all about that 
billing process. And <laughs> it's just, it's relatively insane. And we know it all falls in, I mean, I think we know it, it all comes down to patients don't care about price. Doctors, I mean, they don't really think about price very much. And, right. and if anything, they don't mind getting paid a little more and upcoding some. Um, and so you've got two of the main agents involved in this, not caring or wanting a higher price. And then the real trick is that insurance companies want higher prices. And that's what I think people don't realize is that the third party in the process, the insurance, they love higher prices because they don't pay them anyhow. They have negotiated rates and reference-based pricing sometimes, but they, they don't pay those prices. But the higher those prices are, the more they can claim that they're providing a a worthwhile product to their patients by saving them 80% or whatever on the list prices. So we've got all three parties in the deal, either not caring or wanting higher prices. And it's really quite insane. So no wonder prices rise. Right. Well, and I think, you know, I discussed this last episode with um, Dr. Smith from Oklahoma. I mean, it, <clears throat> that was a part that I never quite got and never understood is that you would think it, that insurance companies would obviously want prices to be lower. But they want them. They want them high as well, because there's, for just the reasons you just stated. And so that's what, that's what always was hard to understand why healthcare would go up so much. You think, boy, these insurance companies should at least be putting a break on this. But that's why, they don't, and they have less incentive. So with with back to the book, Doctor Marcus uh, goes tries to go through his first year of residency. He's obviously a very bright guy. He's got all kinds of, he sees the, the craziness with the system. But I imagine in some ways he sort of mirrors a little bit of your life, just reading some of your bio. So in one part of the book, he goes to Liberia. You have set up a, a, a foundation for healthcare in Liberia. Can you go into that a little bit and sort of why and how you first got into that? I, I'm not, I really don't know a whole lot about that at this point. Sure. Yeah. Um, sometime in uh, 2009, eight or nine, um, did... I was down in Costa Rica for a few weeks doing a, a academic project at a university down there at a, at a children's hospital down in the capital city. Came back, spent one night in the U.S. and then popped to Liberia for my first trip over to West Africa. Um, and what I found there was such a different world of health, not just medical care, but you know everything, of course, is so radically different as one yeah. would expect. But things like um, the patients would carry their own record with them, bring them into you. Uh, you could fill out a couple of lines, something important on it, and give them back the record, and they would be responsible enough to bring it back with them the next time, hmm. um, which basically resolves all the issues in an EMR right there. Uh, and quite simple. Uh, they, you know, of course, they had very little vaccination, and so you'd see all kinds of horrible diseases that we don't see in the right. U.S. Um, <clears throat> but the, you know, the general poverty there is so profound, and um, interesting to see how they've recovered. We, we have a, it's a, the, the, the foundation is called the trusted angels foundation, which the name is derived from doing angel, you know, angel investing in entrepreneurs in West Africa. Um, so what we, what we did was, uh, helped resuscitate a, um, a girl's boarding school. Um, and then that we've moved on from now and we pay for the college educations of those girls. Now we don't, we don't pay for college education in the United States, which is, in my view, kind of more of a four-year indoctrination program. But we pay for the colleges in Liberia, West Africa, for the girls who are becoming women, and then um, nursing schools as well. And plus we did you know, clinics and 
Um, we branched off to uh, another organization called Partners Liberia, which uh, has developed a, res a respiratory therapy school. This is not under my control, but it, it was a it was a metastasis from ours, a happy metastasis, um, and they've ended up buying a hospital from that the Chinese had built a while back, and, it, and it's going to be the the uh, pulmonary hospital for Liberia. So it just kind of keeps on expanding on its own once it gets rolling. Sure, and so and so you've, I mean, when it comes to Liberia and the healthcare, it's clearly a lot different. Do you feel, on some level, that because it's so, uh, I don't want, I, primitive is not a fair word, but you know what I mean? As far as its development, it's, it's far behind the United States, and the Western world in, in many ways. I mean, they can kind of leapfrog by just getting new innovations right from the start. But do you feel like the, the, uh, the regulation that naturally occurs in the, that the regulatory state is a natural occurrence when, as economies become more developed and become richer. So like, you know what I mean? As that, uh, Eventually, at some point, Liberia will, be, will have a JCO of, of sorts. I mean, do you think that's a natural extension of sort of democratic societies? Yeah, I think, I think it is. I think that um, as, as we give more power to government, government takes more power. And there's a reason for that, which is that the people who – there's kind of two different groups of people. One group likes to take control over – nature of or things and tries to tries to uh, manipulate things to work for them you know we build houses and cars that's one group and there's another group who like to manipulate people have power over people and it's the people who like to have power over people the most extreme version of that is the sociopath but um, <clears throat> people who like to have power over people are the ones who are attracted to government because government is all about power over people and so you get more and more and more of them, and then government gets bigger, and then you get you track even more of them. And so there's this inevitable process in democracy that, or any kind of government, that leads to increasing centralized control. Uh, in in the third world, it's often done differently. In the third world, it's um, competing sociopaths take trying to you know, do battle for control over the extant government. Um, so civil war is a very common thing because they want that power structure. They want to control it so that they can, you know, they, they can start stealing from the people just like the previous government did. And that's what happened in Liberia repeatedly. And you look to see who was running that place and the fights, who the fights were among and uh, for all those civil war years. And it's all just a bunch of really bad, evil people um, combat, you know, competing to be, in charge of the, the government structure in here in the United States. Yeah. Not terribly different. They're just not using bullets. Right. I mean, you have a, right. You have a, you have a peaceful transition of power and, and governance, but in, you know, I guess in our, it's so advanced that we have the same people running things, no matter who's in technically in charge, right. It's the same, the same uh, people, the HHS or wherever that they, that are setting the, setting forth the rules and things don't change as even at the top, the regulatory state doesn't really get much smaller. Nope. I've never seen much get smaller. <laughs> no, it just doesn't. There's a, there's a cycle of freedom and, and we're on the downswing, I'm afraid. But, but then we have these positive things like direct primary care movement, tiny fraction. And, and you know, I, I think you've talked to uh, Chad Savage or somebody about uh -huh. that. Yep. I've talked to um, a couple of people. Mm -hmm. 
it's so positive in so many ways. And it, the way I see deep direct primary care is that what it does, it takes this underlying problem in medical care, what you know, was referred to as moral hazard, the lack of care about price, the third party payer problem, whatever you want to call it. It takes that moral hazard that causes the, the medical economy to hyperinflate so profoundly. And, um, and brings it down to the level of the doctor and the patient, where if somebody is abusing the system, it's right there in the doctor's office. It's not, the insurance company doesn't have to say, oh, you're overusing the system, you're spending so much money. The doctor, who the, the, the patient's doctor can say, you know what, you're abusing the system, you're spending too much money on things you don't need. And that's such an easier place to resolve it than the insurance company just, or a government just saying, no, you can't have a kidney transplant. Right. Well, and I mean, you look at, um, and I plan to do an episode in this earlier, prior authorizations and things where you have, where you have, you basically turn the physician into, you know, trying, begging the insurance company to allow things to happen that they think is clinically relevant and important. Um, yeah, they're, they're unpaid, patient, right? I consider a physician who's doing that, which almost all do. I actually refuse to, and my nurse kind of took all that, but effectively, effectively same thing you're, doing, but, you're paying her to do it, right? Yeah. Yeah, but yes, it's just that the physician becomes an unpaid member of the insurance company's cost containment policy. Yeah. And, you know, what on earth? Why on earth? And, you know, I got balled out by somebody who was higher in the ranks than me at, Academ- in the, at EVA at one point because I'd sent a letter to the insurance company billing them for my services. And <laughs> um, oh, he said, if I could fire you, I'd fire you. I said, oh, too bad you can't, man. <laughs> it's been nice to have tenure. <laughs> I wasn't even tenured that. Oh, that's <laughs> he just knew he couldn't. <laughs> but yeah, later got tenure. But then I resigned it within like two years or three years of getting it. So it wasn't very valuable. <laughs> so in the in the end of the book, I I don't want to spoil the ending for those who are going to get the book. Again, called Assume the Physician. Uh, and the link for that obviously will be in the show notes page at um, paradox.com slash 013 or 013. Uh, the Dr. Marcus decides to leave medicine. Right. And uh, he goes into his explanation of things, but he doesn't really totally, I guess, in some ways. But do you think if do you think today, if you rewrote that book, he would become a direct primary care physician and you'd have that emphasized in your book? Yeah, I think there's some things I would have changed. Yeah, sure. DPC would have been his route as opposed to the kind of the route that you'll see happens in the book. Um, I would have put in information about uh, from pharmacy benefit managers yeah. uh, when I'm talking about the drugs. I just wasn't. I wasn't aware of the degree to which they have tortured us all <laughs> and right. that hugely crony catastrophe that is the pharmacy benefit managers. Um, I would have put that in there. You know, I was able to elucidate, well, I, hopefully with some gut cracking humor, the way that uh, the pharmaceutical reps, you know, tried to get uh, talking heads or what they call thought leaders to um, spew out the stuff for the pharmaceutical companies not to try to get doctors to prescribe more drug, but to be able to convince the speaker increasingly uh, of the value of their drug. So their speaker, when they go sit on a committee that ends up writing some kind of uh, protocol or, or best practices document, um, ends up promoting their particular drug. And I think that's the trick that most doctors don't know is that it's the, it's the thought leaders, they're selected not because of their incredible skill at getting other doctors to write prescriptions, but on their likelihood of being promoted up to some position of authority in a guidelines writing committee. And right. all the rest is just 
Hmm? What's that? Oh, I was going to say that was really interesting. And and I had never thought of that before, but it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, maybe I'm naive in that I don't really think of, uh, or at least I, I'm certainly not that sophisticated to think of, to think that far in advance, but I'm sure these pharmaceutical companies have, and that you're finding people who are going to write on it, sit on a commission for say the cardiologist and they're going to have in their algorithm, you're going to take this drug at this point, if this drug fails and you know, most physicians abide by those because they're, they're guidelines. They're usually based in some sort of evidence, but you'd rather have your beta blocker there than someone else's beta blocker, the first one there or whatever. And so that was a very interesting insight. I had not thought, I, the only thing I had noticed is that all the drug reps look pretty much the same. Um, or when I was at Iowa as a resident, uh, they all seem to be former football players who (laughs) who are selling devices (laughs) They all, all the orthopedic device salesmen were former football players, the football team. Right. <laughs> and so I think the yeah. orthopedic guys love the, <laughs> they love the athletes coming in the ones they often treated before. Yep. You know, whatever works that <laughs> the marketing people, their job is to market and they find great ways to do it. Right. Uh, I don't, don't object. I, the problem is it sits on top of a situation where there's no price there's no price signals of any kind and there's no price signals of any kind because of the intermediacy of the insurance companies and the government. And so it leaves the system to hyperinflate. So it's all part of a big, horrible system that, that the government uh, absolutely instigated. It created right. this monster. And then it, Obamacare just ended up mandating what we all participate in crony central. Right. And, and, you know, Dr. Smith does not feel this way, and he says too magnanimous for saying this, but I think a lot of it is sort of unintentionally sort of you end up where you are, and it's not it's not intentional that people expect to cause, say, drug shortages by having the pharmacy benefit managers and the and the group purchasing organizations in place. Uh, that there were it was definitely signed and passed in order to um, create a a monopoly, a monopolized system, in which case they they profited heavily from in the sort of crony capitalist essentially, but they never anticipated that it would cause uh, these drug shortages that I, that I have to deal with and that phys- that patients have to deal with, where they you can't have they don't have access to the medications they need. Um, so, yeah. oh, go ahead. <laughs> oh, it's just it's it's amazing that things like normal saline or or PBS or sodium bicarb um, are not available um, <clears throat> sometimes. You know, what on earth? I mean, what, what took it to the point where there's only a couple of manufacturers who can make sodium bicarbonate infusion drips? I mean, that's something I could do in my lab in about 45 seconds, run it through a bacteriologic filter, do a couple of tests and make sure it's good. Yeah. No reason a pharmacy can't do that in the basement of the hospital. But on, where somehow it's got the, the system is now so screwed up and so fearful that you can't make a bag of normal saline in your right. own hospital. You can have a fifth grader make that, right? You too much sodium chloride to put it back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just to sterilize it up real quick. I mean, that's not hard to do. You squeeze yeah. it through a filter, and you you obviously use good sourced ingredients, but um, but making up bags of fluid. Why do we have to rely on some manufacturing facility in Puerto Rico or wherever it is? Well, and right, and so, and ultimately, what's complicated about it is, of course, this these rules were were set and forth in 1987 or whatever. That's when the Safe Harbor Law was passed, and so it takes a long time before you you get a market that becomes so fragile that a, a natural disaster or, or you know a fire in a plant or something is what suddenly shuts down, and now you have no flexibility in the market, like. There aren't many products in the United States, especially such an advanced economy, where you, 
you know, there's no backup if something happens. If there's a you know a fire in a toothpaste factory, there'll be plenty of toothpaste still on the shelves. I use this analogy all the time. Um, <laughs> so to find out more about your stuff, uh, where would you recommend people go and um, and your other books? Um, well, I guess to get Assume the Physician, the easiest way, of course, is to go to Amazon. Um, probably the primary way. The um, there's a, a small book publishing house which we've created called High Ground Books. Um, which is highgroundbooks.com. Um, and that that promotes primarily um, the novels that I'm writing with my co-author, Doug Casey. Uh, first one is called Speculator. The next one in the series is called Drug Lord. Third one will be coming out pretty soon called Assassin. Um, and that books, those books are novels. They're, you know, they're action thrillers, um, but they, they're, they're all about ends not justifying means. It's It's about... Libertarian mentality, and what what would a hero be like who doesn't initiate force against the innocent, and and what how can that hero mature over the course of his lifetime? Um, those are fun books, and they get good attention, um, and we're hoping to get more attention. Um, you know, Ron Paul wrote his wrote wrote a cover blurb for us, and a lot of other notaries, not, not notaries, notables. Um, so they can go to High Ground Books, and um, also as of um, tomorrow, to, between today and tomorrow, I'll be managing the business side of a newsletter called International Man, which has been around for a while. It's uh, Doug Casey's uh, International Man. He wrote a book in 1978-79 that was a big hit about how to internationalize assets, get out from underneath the bureaucracy of the government of the United States, uh, help to avoid jurisdictional <coughs> malfeasance. Um, on your own. And so international man will be, we'll be talking a lot on international man going forward about um, the healthcare system in the U S and the rest of the world and how to find free market solutions, how to get, you know, go to uh, Cayman's to get your surgery at a 20% of the price. Um, and you know, medical tourism in general, all kinds of things like that will be on internationalman.com. Great. And readjohnhunt.com too. I saw as a site for X at oh. least way to find you. Assume the physician and and your and your other book too. Correct. I don't actually go to those sites very much myself anymore. I need to take a look at those. Is that funny? Kind of- you, my friend has the same problem. She has so many uh, so many different websites. She kind of forgets them, and so I'm like, "Don't you have this site? Oh yeah, I have that one too." <laughs> right. It's, it's it's a wonder of the internet that you can you know pay ten dollars as a recurring fee. You really don't notice that ten dollars that comes out of your bank account every once a year, and you just own right. those sites in perpetuity. And if you don't adjust them, and you know. They just they just kind of sit there. They're always open. I suppose there'll be a lot of people who'll be uh, running websites until a year after they expire. They suddenly right, right, and, and then they're they gone. The credit card no longer works. <laughs> that person's dead, and so now we'll close, turn down your site. But they'll be going long after you're dead for a while anyway. Yeah. Um, so I have a quick question on the medical tourism. So is that something that well, you're you're no longer practicing, but if you're getting knee replacement or something like that. Do you, is that something you recommend to people that they go to? Oh my, yeah. Oh my, yeah. So who's, who's operating the Cayman Islands? Cause you know, I'm not going to tell someone to go to India for surgery. I mean, I'm sure you can get stuff done there, but how do you, how do you navigate that? Is that, you know, how do you figure all that stuff out? Well, this, so the first thing is that the insurance companies aren't really supporting it yet. So you're really tar- that the people who are going to do this, are the people who've got to spend their own money, the, the sharing ministry members, uh, uninsured, 
um, or people who just um, insist on not participating in the in this crony system in the United States. But there's medical tourism companies. Um, Med Retreat is one of them. Um, Medi Bid, and you should talk to both of these people. Med Retreat is Judd Anglin, uh, A N G L I N, and um, and Medibid is Ralph Weber. Medibid is an online auction system, and they go international. Uh, they do, you know, they they uh, Medibid will get prices in from people like Keith Smith at Oklahoma Surgical Center, um, and you can go online and get doctors bidding for the you know lowest price, highest quality combination for your services. And that same thing is is, is expanding around the world. So you can go to. Um, Caymans and have this wonderful trip in the Caymans, uh, get your knee replaced for 20% or whatever the cost of the United States by absolutely tip top places in a tip top, tip, tippy top hospital um, with highly trained physicians. Same in Thailand. Um, you, it's, you get much better care, much better um, uh, accommodations, and well, much better care. Fully good US. Um, type of care in these places for a fifth of the cost and and your family can get a vacation out of it too. Um, but it's only for the free market people. It's not for the people who are stuck in the crony insurance system. Right. Well, very interesting. I'll have to add that to my list. I, I was telling people when I started this podcast, I said, well, after about four episodes, I don't really know what I'm going to talk about, but it turns out <laughs> there's a lot to talk about. <laughs> and the stack, they're, they're, is, the stack is pretty hot, pretty big. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd love it if you could do one on evidence-based medicine um, and what that really means. <laughs> you know, we could talk about that for a long time too. Right, and uh, I think, and and I and I've heard. Uh, let's see, Russ Roberts was it Russ Roberts, an econ talk or someone did one on that, and I, and anyway, it was very interesting. But I think it would be nice to kind of go over that because I when, when I talked to Dr. Akkad, it was sort of that when you talked about patient treating populations, not patients, it's sort of along those same lines, mm-hmm. uh, but it is compl- It is complicated in the sense that, you know, as a physician, you are, there's an expectation that you, you use the, the large patient population studies to, to drive your care, right? So, you know, well, this medication usually works. So it's, it'd be wise for me to, to use this on this patient, but you know, how, where that, how, where that fine line is of, of treating the person versus now you're just treating well, you're just I think everyone should be on this because that's a good idea and not indiv- individualizing your treatment, but still using the population-based studies to to guide your therapy on some level too. It it becomes it becomes a little tricky, you know, when you're trying to figure out the percentages of likelihood of things working or not. And it especially when I came of age in medical school where, of course, evidence-based medicine was Google, the gold standard of medicine. And I'm sure you're pretty much the same time as I was. And yeah, so, I, I kind of barfed on the gold standard a lot, but yeah, <laughs> I was certainly taught that. <laughs> it's nice that someone believes in a gold standard, right? I think that's, that's, <laughs> that's someone encouraging. <laughs> if only a name, right? Yeah, yeah. In, in China... Um, so I, I, re, I review and edit Chinese papers, just paper, medical papers of Chinese scientists who want to publish in the English language literature. And I just do that to keep my fingers in the game and to be knowledgeable about what's coming out, uh, at least out of China. But one thing I found, about 95% of the, the, the writers of these articles have collectivism so much built into their brain that they make conclusions that I would think are insane. Like they'll, they'll, they'll find... For example, uh, some drug that 
uh, they're comparing two drugs and one of them works in 52% of people and the other one works better in 48% of people. And their conclusion that they're going to recommend to, you know, the entire government of their nation or their province is that only the one that works in 52% of the patients is the one that should be used. <laughs> it's that degree of collectivist, you know, uh, infection, brain disability that has come out of that, you know, thousands of years of collectivist mentality. That's sort of like uh, if you, you win 56% of the, the vote that you have a mandate to do something, right? It's, right. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, a, it's the same kind of thing. It's, you know, it's, we do have an illness. I think the nation has a collective illness of collectivism and it's so path it's so pathological, you know, where it's reared its head, it, you know, it caused you know, Paul Pot exterminating a quarter of his population, Mao Zedong killing 50 million, you know, Stalin 30 million, Hitler 10 million. When you have these kind of collectivist, these paths forward of collectivism, huge numbers of, of people die from that illness. And, um, and, and then in, where it's less severe, like in Cuba or in Venezuela, you get just massive loss of dignity, a little bit less loss of life, but but a huge amount of loss of dignity from this collectivist infection. And it's taken off. We had some uh, democratic socialist elected or nominated in New York recently uh, to run for Congress. Um, it's like, what? I mean, I know they want change, but do they want change that way? <laughs> to change to more government control, more narcissists running the damn in- asylum? I don't know. Right. Well, on that cheery note, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm supposed to be cracking jokes, right? Yeah, I thought so. No, I, <laughs> that's no. I'd like to uh, again. I'd like to recommend the book. Assume the physician. Really funny. And I imagine I don't know Joseph Heller who wrote Catch Twenty Two, but I imagine pretty much that sort of you know when you have sort of a cynic, a, a bemused cynicism that you look at the world. And I was just listening to a talk about stoicism. It you know you you it, it's sort of along the same lines that I. That you have to—it's almost like a gallows humor, right? In some way, and so that's why I think the book you'll learn a lot, and uh, while you're also being entertained, and so I'd highly recommend. Again, it'll be available on the show notes page at paradox.com/slash thirteen. Doctor Hunt, thank you so much for spending this morning with me and my listeners. Thank you so much for having me. Now, crack more jokes next time. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash The Paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. Excuse me. <clears throat> Why you shouldn't do an interview first thing in the morning, I guess. <laughs> I, I can take over while you're recovering. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. No, no, that's it's all me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, the, the, um, go ahead.